Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. You have all made it to the You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the award-winning John of All Trades podcast. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. That's right, I said award-winning. The John of All Trades podcast won the Westward Reader's Choice Award 2017 for Best Denver Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you to anyone who voted we could not do it without you. The Reader's Choice Award. Wow. That means I won the popular vote. This podcast won the popular vote in terms of best podcast in Denver, and that is mind-blowing to me. I am overcome and overwhelmed with gratitude, and I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to vote for me and for letting me into your life and letting me bring you this show. So, the first episode of A Brand New Era. Here we go. Episode 130. This is Brad Swartzwelder. Brad Swartzwelder is a train conductor, which, what a cool job, right? I think that's something we all wanted to be, at least in the abstract, at some point in our lives. Who didn't play with trains? Who didn't ride a train and say, wow, what a cool job. I want to be a train conductor. Well, Brad actually became one, and he shares with us what it's like to do the work as a paid professional. And I'll tell you, after talking to him, there's a lot that goes into it. It is a very intense job. And he says it's a fun job, but you're also protecting people's lives. You're ensuring their comfort. It's a very intimate industry, as is any hospitality industry. He says it in this show. It's where people eat. It's where people go to the bathroom. It's where people sleep. Those are all very intimate things. And, you know, you take that for granted when you travel. Whether you're going by plane, whether you're staying in a hotel, whether you're at a restaurant, there's a lot that goes into the behind the scenes. And Brad gives us... A very cool picture of what it's like to work in this industry. Additionally, on this episode of the show, Brad also talks about the future of travel. We talk about Hyperloop. We talk about high-speed underground train travel using magnetic levitation trains, maglev trains. You've probably seen Elon Musk talking about Hyperloop. You've seen companies awarded grants and exploring the possibility and the feasibility of completely changing the way we travel in this country, and that's very exciting. Brad's written a book. It's called Faster Than Jets. It's available on Amazon, and it's a little bit dated. came out in 2003, but it's a cool view of this technology and what it could mean for all of us. So there's a link to that on the John of All Trades blog, so go to jonofalltrades.us. You can find out more about Hyperloop technology. I linked to a recent Denver Business Journal article about it, and it's really, really exciting. He talks about there will be a generation that makes a sacrifice to make this happen, and it could be ours. I kind of hope it's ours because we're due for an entire technological revolution and I believe that even more after talking to Brad in this week's episode. Now, I'd like to give a shout to our sponsor, 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They have been our sponsor since the beginning, and now they are the sponsor of an award-winning podcast. They are an award-winning web development firm. Anything you are looking to do in the digital space, 4Degrees can help you achieve that. Whether you're building a campaign, building a website, doing some social media marketing, putting together an advertising campaign... Four Degrees is second to none when it comes to this, and they have the awards to prove it. So check them out on the web, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They are a big part of the success of the John of All Trades podcast. I cannot speak highly enough of them, so go out and support them if you would. Great way to stay up on the John of All Trades podcast, additionally, is iTunes and Stitcher. You can get every episode delivered directly to your listening device. All you have to do is hit that subscribe button. What's easier than that? It's as easy as potentially climbing into a tube with a maglev train and getting from 
I don't know, Denver to Chicago in, say, 40 minutes. How is that possible? Well, let Brad Schwartzwelder tell you how it's done. He's a train conductor. He's an author. He's also the head of a union. So we talk about unions a little bit in this episode, too, which is something we haven't done yet on this show. So let's get to it. Episode 130, Brad Schwartzwelder, starts right now. I, I hate to say it, but I was so focused on Denver Union Station and the whole renovation down there. Oh, sure, yeah. And trying to keep trying to keep Amtrak and uh, our unions and everybody else in that building. I just haven't had time to really go out and explore any of the other redevelopments of the city that have been going on. That's just dynamic. Yeah, why well, one hundred percent. And that Union Station project was huge. I mean, years long. And, you know, Union Station architecturally was always really cool to look at, but not terribly functional for a long time. Is that fair to say? No, that's extremely fair to say. We have um, Amtrak was the primary tenant of old Union Station with one train east and one train west a day. And then during the ski season, Mr. Anschutz was running a ski train in and out of it. Right. And other than that, it was just this colossal empty space. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of sad because I remember as a kid I went to like Indianapolis's Union Station and I that was really cool. It was like a whole experience. It was a whole thing. We spent a whole night there. Sure. Well, and now you can spend the night at the Crawford Hotel inside Union Station. So it's it's really improved the whole character of Lodo. Uh and it's just thrilling to see what's happened. It's so cool to see all the people that have moved in every Business that opens seems to thrive. It's it's just been uh, an extremely exciting three or four years. I'll bet that's been great having a front row seat to it too. Uh, being involved has been uh, a real blessing, and uh, especially when the first tracks opened after the renovation, and we'd gone through years in this temporary little train station for Amtrak that had one track and passengers had to cross a street, we wada, to get from the station to the train. And, and after years of that. Sounds a little dicey. Oh, it was, uh, we did it without an injury. We worked hard to make it safe. But when we finally were pushing in, and I, and I was the conductor of that first train to push onto those brand new tracks, and there were officials and media and everybody was there. Hmm. And, and it was so beautiful in those big white canopies and, I knew then that this was going to change this part of the city forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it more than exceeded those expectations. Yeah, 100%. So this is Brad Schwartzwelder. And you are, I, I'd just like to say, it, it's fun to say this because I haven't had this profession. I haven't talked to anyone who does what you do. You are a train conductor. I am a train conductor, And yes. I think everyone who's listening, their inner five-year-old has got to be just thrilled at that because at some point I think we all wanted to be train conductors, right? I mean, well, I, I think so. You know, we're right up there with firemen, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I learned how to ski at Winter Park mm-hmm. and I can clearly remember standing up on Parkway, one of the uh, green runs yep. as a very young boy, maybe three or four years old and watching the California Zephyr burst out of the Moffat Tunnel. Yeah. And it would blow its whistle and these, these beautiful locomotives and the oscillating headlight and the shining passenger cars and people waving to us from the Vista domes. And it just looked about as cool as it could possibly be. And I was seeing it from, uh, the vantage point of a chairlift. Yeah. And it was fantastic. Well, this is a very vivid picture of Americana that you're painting. I mean, just, you know, that what you're painting I, may as well be done by Norman Rockwell in terms of what you're describing. Well, if if he were still alive, I'm sure he would have enjoyed <laughs> painting that scene. Uh, it, it left a dynamic and uh, permanent impression on me. Sure. Are you a Colorado native? Not quite. Uh, I was born at University Hospital in Iowa City. And immediately after I was born, my father graduated from dental school, and he moved here, Lowry Air Force Base, during the Vietnam era. And so I grew up in uh, first Denver over at Lowry, and then Dad opened a dental practice in 1966 in uh, Boulder, and I spent the rest of my youth growing up in Boulder. Okay, so you're about as close to a native as you can get. I mean, technicality, maybe not, but... Overall, I, I think that's pretty darn close, don't you? I absolutely do, yes. I, I consider myself a native. Okay, perfect. So 
given that you're three or four years old, looking at the California Zephyr coming through the tunnel, did you know then that's what you wanted to do? I mean, was it that simple? I, I couldn't say that that's what I wanted to do as a career, but I did know that I loved to ski and I did know that I loved trains. Okay. So, okay, take me through the path a little bit then, because ultimately we're, we're at this point where you see that train emerge from that tunnel and we are where you are now, where you're a train conductor and the head of the union, the local union. Yeah. I'm the uh, president of the sheet metal, uh, air rail transit workers, okay. local 166, which is the passenger conductors for Amtrak in, uh, Denver. We also cover Albuquerque, Salt Lake City and Reno, Nevada. Okay. And you know, unions are, are a fairly hot topic right now. Uh, Strength of your union good? How are things? The strength of our union is very good. Uh, we've got a very powerful membership that is a little bit unique, and I am very proud of the way we've tried hard to partner with our employer, which is Amtrak, the National Passenger Rail Corporation, to bring more passengers to the rails and give the government the best bang for the buck we can, hmm. uh, while at the same time, of course, doing what unions do, which is protect and maintain our standard of living. Right. In terms of, yeah, your employees and your quality of life. You, you said it perfectly there. Um, okay, so take me through that moment in time, and, and you don't need to get as granular as that, but viewing this train and, and having admiration for it too, getting to where you are now, if someone were to want to become a train conductor in this day and age, uh, how did you go about doing it and how might that differ now? Well, I, I don't think it's much different now, John. Um, the way I did it was when I finally made the decision uh, when I was 27 years old that I wasn't interested in uh, continuing on in the industry I was in, which was landscaping. I okay. Decided very clearly to sell the company that I owned and go to college. So you were entrepreneur, that kind of thing. Started I, your own business. Yes, uh, several businesses. Some failed, some didn't. Take, but, take take me through those. I'm always I'm always fascinated by the origin story of what you know. What were the things that that people did before they got to where they are now? Sure. Well, uh, uh, right out of high school, I started uh, a landscape maintenance company along with my friend Zane Blackmer, uh, who became a very successful commercial real estate developer in Boulder. Uh, and together, he and I uh, operated what became a fairly prominent landscape maintenance and construction company in Boulder. And we did that for many years. And it was clear by my mid-20s that that was not what I wanted to be, be when I grew up. Why not? Uh, it was, well, first of all, it was a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> the industry dynamics were changing greatly. It was a very labor-driven industry that was becoming uh, more and more immigrant-based. Mm. And I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't have the ability to uh, recruit on that level. Mm. And the whole dynamics of that industry were pushing price down. Uh. And it, it wasn't where I wanted to stay. Sure. Um, was it taking a toll on your body? Uh, very much so. Yeah. Very, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And I, I mean, this is radio, not television. Um, sorry. No, that's okay. You showed me your finger. Uh, would you care to share what happened? Uh, actually that had nothing to do with, with landscaping. <laughs> that, that was a saw blade, but, um, Yikes. okay. Uh, basically I had an accident and I chopped off a couple of fingers and you know, that, that was just part of the world that I lived in. But, uh, uh, it, the bottom line was that Zane and I decided to sell that company, and we did. And and with the proceeds from that sale, I knew I wanted to be in the passenger train business, wanted to go back to what I really liked to do, mm -hmm. or the hospitality business, which would be skiing, one of the other. Right, yeah. So the natural place to go was Metropolitan State College because they had the Hospitality Meeting and Travel Administration Department, and it was a bachelor's degree. Nice. In uh, It was exactly the direction I wanted to go that would leave options open to go in either direction. Okay. So, um, so you're 27 years old. How long did that take you? Three years. Three. Wow. So you busted ass and, uh, and just, uh, railroaded, pardon the pun, <laughs> your way through it, right? I, I had no choice. I was, uh, I had enough money to get myself through three years of it. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, as, 
after going through that, what, what types of classes do you take in that type of major? Well, tour management, um, meeting and planning is a big part of it. Uh, group travel is something that uh, has so many details to it. A lot of people don't realize the amount of technical knowledge a person needs to be able to do that properly so that a tourist or, or a customer doesn't feel as if it's a burden to travel. They just get right. on and go. Or, or that they're not being sort of cast adrift in a place that they're unfamiliar with, right? Exactly. But one of the things that I came up with uh, in one of my theses was a, uh, a tourist's span of attention hmm. and listening to scenic awareness announcements. And I developed a thing called the 30-second rule, hmm. where you talk about something that somebody will see or do in 30 seconds or less, and then you be quiet for 30 seconds or less so that they can talk about it with the people they really want to be with, which is their family and friends. Right. And that's proved very successful. I've used it my entire career. Okay. Things like that. You had time in college to develop these thoughts and these ideas uh, while at the same time getting the technical proficiency to be able to run the reservation systems and all those other parts of travel that are rather cumbersome. Right. And and what you're talking about, if you put it almost in restaurant parlance, you're talking about balancing back of the house needs with front of the house needs. Is exactly. that fair to say? Abs- absolutely. And and restaurant was a big part of it as well. I hadn't even right. gotten into that <laughs> side of it. But uh, restaurant and also hotel, the, the hospitality industry is extremely intimate with people. Mm. It's where they eat. It's where they go to the bathroom. It's where they shower. It's where they sleep. Right. And putting all those elements together in a way that keeps people comfortable requires a powerful back of the house. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. It, all the things that are not seen, um, but, but that are experienced in a very real way by people, yet we, we don't want to see it, – it's almost, it reminds me of this story I heard once where – in the WWE, there's the chief operating officer is this guy named Triple H. And he was a performer at one time, and he developed a friendship with Chris Angel, uh, who's sort of a, a weirdo magician out of Las Vegas. And Chris Angel said, hey, do you want to see how the tricks work? And Triple H said, no, I don't because I want to enjoy the show. I don't want to ruin this for myself i i appreciate the magic and as a professional wrestler you can certainly appreciate that because what they're doing is choreographed and you know they're cooperating with each other to to tell a story if you think of hospitality it's almost like you're trying to tell a story for the guests but you don't necessarily want them to see the superstructure behind it is is that uh an instructive way of thinking about it well that's an extremely good way to think about it because any journey is a story you're just writing it as you go. Right. And and you're hoping that the guest feels like they're writing it themselves. That's right. But in a lot of ways you're you're helping them along and and you don't necessarily want to detract from the experience unnecessarily. I'm also thought of uh, I had on this show Reed Saunders who does the public address for the Colorado Rockies and he said people only really notice public address when it's bad. Hmm. That's a good point. And, and you don't, you don't want to call attention to that. You don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to give people fodder. You don't want to take them out of the game. So almost what you're training to do through this major is, is work in ways that are very important, but largely unseen. Yes. Okay. That's fascinating to me because, and that's what I love about this podcast is there's so much that goes into our day-to-day lives that we don't even think about. There is, um, uh, just, just to go to the train station and jump on the Winter Park Express and right. go up for a day of skiing feels like not much. <laughs> right. Um, but if you had any idea uh, about the teams, both at Winter Park and at Amtrak, uh, working hard to make that happen, uh, just the Winter Park uh, Express probably consumed 500 to 1,000 hours of executive time on the Amtrak level alone to put on the tracks. And then that day, my day starts at 3 a.m. Okay. (laughs) And by the time the passenger arrives, I've already had half my day go by. (laughs) Okay. So take me through that day then. Um, You you brought it up. So let's go through the day. You start at 3 a.m. Take me through what a day in the life is like as, as the conductor of the Winter Park Express. Well, uh, I, I'm the manager. The conductor won't show up till 5.30. He okay. gets to sleep in. 
Um, <laughs> wow, those lazy conductors getting to sleep in, uh, you know. That's right. They're, they they can come so late they can even take light rail to work. Um, <laughs> Living high off the hog. I uh, I arrive at Denver Union Station and immediately walk through the train and do a uh, inspection of the work that the cleaning crew did. Uh, and uh, any deficiencies, I'll I'll do a quick touch up. Sure. I get the doors unlocked. I prepare all of the ski racks. Uh, uh, I and then I get all of the signage out uh, because, of course, we don't need any signage out when the train isn't running and it's a weekend service. So I get all the signage out. I uh, review all of the manifests. I know exactly who's coming, how many people in each group, things like that. Wow. Uh, try to organize any special seating assignments. Uh, then I'll go down into the back office, mm-hmm. which is, uh, is actually in the basement of Union Station, the Amtrak offices. And then I'll begin talking to the dispatchers for RTD that controls Union Station track, the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, which controls the track that goes over Platte River. And then I'll talk to the Union Pacific dispatcher who deals with the majority of our railroad. Those are called host railroads. Okay. I'll get all the paperwork for them uh, and uh, find out about any special situations uh, that might be exist on the track. For example, we go through Rocky Flats. Okay, yeah. A lot of wind, often. Sure. And when it's really windy, we'll slow down to 10 miles an hour. I find out about those kind of things or, or what's called orders, uh, slow orders. Okay. So I get all that together, and then when the conductors and engineers show up finally at 530, um, <laughs> we have a briefing, and we go over all of the safety needs. I share everything I've learned from the manifest, the dispatchers, et cetera, with those guys. Yeah. And then at 545, we have a tremendous group of people who are volunteer hosts from the uh, organization called Colorail. Colorail is Colorado's premier passenger rail advocacy group, and that group uh, – um, was instrumental in helping get the train together, and eight of their volunteers each day will come and uh, pass out information to passengers, uh, both about the day that they'll have and also on how to find where they're supposed to go when they arrive at the station. Uh, so we have a briefing, and then at 6 o'clock, passengers start arriving, and the day is on. Wow. And then, okay, and then what time does the train leave? Does it depart? 7 a.m., sharp. Okay. Wow. Um, and then, so it's, and it's about what, hour and a half? It's an hour and 40 minutes if we have zero delays. Okay. However, it's the railroad. Delays aren't completely uncommon. So we've scheduled a two hour run. Okay. And what will potentially delay a railroad? Well, if there's, uh, two freight trains that are, uh, uh trying to, uh, get out of the way at the same time, it'll be difficult for the dispatcher to get all the timing just right. So we might take a few minutes here and there. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense to me. And then you mentioned wind, you'll slow down as a result of high winds or something like that. All of those variables. And, and there's, uh, innumerable number of variables that could happen. Uh, we rely on electronic switches. Sure. Uh, just because that's an electronic mechanical device, sometimes that can fail. Well, that can cost us 10, 20 minutes just for one of those. That makes sense. And if cartoons are to be believed, there's frequently a cow on the tracks, right? You know, <laughs> it, it can happen. I, I don't want to say what we do if there is a cow on the track. <laughs> okay. But, uh, it, you know, cow on the tracks, probably not as big a problem as it, it's like when I was a kid, I thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger issue as an adult than it ever was. But, uh, probably not as much as say wind or, you know, communicating with traffic from other trains, right? Exactly. And, and it's a very secured system that is extremely safe. Uh, for example, the road we go over is the Moffett subdivision of the Union Pacific Railroad. Mm-hmm. Since 1904, when David Moffett first blasted that line out of the front range, there has never been a passenger life lost. Wow. That's great. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a testament to the work that you do. It's tens of millions of passengers. And, uh, yes, we, we take that very, very seriously. Okay. I think in terms of let's let's pivot for a second to the actual train conductor. When you were on the trip, you know, when you were in transit, um, I think most people's understanding of what a train conductor does or is comes from like old West movies, right? You know, you're you're up there, you're shoveling coal or you know whatever. Um, what what is it like, uh, and and what does a train conductor actually do as they're running the train? 
Well, the train conductor is in charge of the operation of the train. Uh, he's certified by the federal government to do so on a passenger train. And, uh, and and what does it take to get certified? What kind of process is that like? Well, first of all, you have to get hired. That's sure. the first trick. <laughs> uh, and then there's a tremendous amount of training. Okay. Uh, you have to go through quite a bit of time in the freight railroad as a brakeman or in the passenger uh, business as an assistant conductor. Okay. And then – Could you think of that almost like as as an apprenticeship? Uh, you could, although you can do your entire career as an assistant okay. conductor, uh, but you'd still have to get certified as a full-fledged conductor. Okay, understood. But uh, no, the, the conductor then manages the train as opposed to the locomotive engineer, which you sort of alluded to, who is the person that actually pulls the levers in the engine. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay, so that's that's two different jobs. It is. Yes. Okay. And two different unions, two completely different crafts. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I I think just because, I mean, this falls under that category of things we experience but know little about, I don't know if I should find that surprising or not. Well, it, it's one of those back office things. Why would you need to worry about that if you're just going on a train ride? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Uh, are the trains running? Then great. I'm going to sit down and, you know, have a cup of coffee. Right? Sure. Sure. And so the locomotive engineer is a vital part. The The amount of skill and multitasking that is required for that job is intense. And uh, they are uh, consummate professionals. And the conductor is then in charge of not only overseeing him or being a second set of eyes, compared, you know, comparing bulletins and orders to what's actually happening on the tracks, uh, but I was also in charge of the passenger experience, uh, everything from collecting revenue and ticketing to making sure that uh, all of the equipment, the, the seats, the seat backs, all that kind of stuff is functioning mm. uh, and being ultimately the boss. So, for example, on the Winter Park Express, I'm a special duty train manager. I'm not the conductor. Mm -hmm. If the conductor has uh, a decision to make, he overrules me. Oh, wow. Because it is his train. Wow. Now, we work together very closely. Of course. And in most cases, I have seniority over them, and I'm going to be the conductor after the season's <laughs> over, so he knows that. But <laughs> the uh, the point is that the conductor is in charge, and it is that person's train. And uh, it's it's a very responsible job. It's a fun job. But uh, when the conductor needs to be on – to protect the safety and security of the passengers, they have to be very good. It, so, I mean, it, it's a fun job, but it's a job with a lot of responsibility. I think it is, yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny because you're talking about the safety and, you know, the, the protection of people's lives. And it's funny to me that, that that balances with fun. You know what I mean? Sure. Like that's, that's like the yin and the yang of the profession, I would say. Well, it, it is, except for the yang is also something that you can embrace right. because you know the rules. You, you know exactly how to function. You can do it right. Uh, for example, uh, if there's a situation where we have a grade crossing that's malfunctioning, and the dispatcher lets us know that that's malfunctioning. We have very set rules. We know exactly what to do. I know exactly how to flag that crossing to not only protect the, the train, but also protect the motorists that would be crossing that railroad. And putting that all together, doing it quickly and efficiently, and still be able to only delay the train a few minutes is something that we take great pride in doing professionally and doing well. And then we get back on the train and immediately we can start handing out little stickers to the kids <laughs> and having that kind of fun again. Right. That sounds cool. What What would you say is the most surprising thing about being a train conductor or, or being, you know, uh, doing what you do um, that, that people might not realize? Uh, and, and what is something – this is a two-part question. What is something that if you were to travel back in time and tell yourself as a three- or four-year-old – um, looking at that train um, that, that you didn't know then that you know now that would just blow your young mind? Well, that's an excellent question. The thing I would say is start sooner <laughs> right? so that you have higher seniority earlier <laughs> in life. 
Um, one of the problems with the railroad industry is that the people with lowest seniority get the most difficult jobs, the night jobs, the hard jobs, the sure. jobs that are dirty. And that's exactly at the time when you're having young kids. Oh, my. And that's the saddest part about the industry. Uh, we work on railroad time. It's it's not a 9 to 5 job by any sense of the imagination. Well, 3 a.m., I mean, hello. Right. W- when does your day end, by the way? Um, well, on, when I'm managing the Winter Park Express, usually I'm back home by 8 p.m., 8.30. <laughs> what? That That's like the longest day ever. Well, it's it, mm, – you were never in the military. Um, it, it's a nice long day. <laughs> Clearly. But uh, um, keep in mind, it's it's a fun day, and most of the day is not spent working. Once the okay. train gets to Fraser, Colorado, after dropping off everybody at – the resort, the train sits there for about seven and a half hours. Right. So that's quite a bit of time where I I have an opportunity to do some repairs, do some tidying up, you know, little things that need being done. But it's also time where I can close the eyes for a few minutes. Okay. Uh, the train is is what we call tied down. It's secured. Right. And uh, uh, the operating crew, the conductors and engineers, are are getting what's called uh, hours of service rest okay. uh, off, off the train. So uh, as the train manager, I, I can kind of shut down a little. Okay. So you're not working for those 17 hours straight. No. No. Uh, that, that would strike me as a very sort of anti-union <laughs> proposition as well. Exactly. Exactly. No. And, and that wouldn't, that wouldn't be allowable. But at the same time, while I'm doing this job, there's not a lot of sweat dripping from the brow as opposed to landscaping where there was. Sure. Yeah. In terms of the railroad industry and in terms of what you're describing about seniority, how does that play into sort of how that relates to uh, being in a union? Is is that an inhibitor or is that something that, that ultimately benefits people? But seniority is something you hear about in particular uh, with regard to unions. Sure. Uh, seniority is the most wonderful, terrible thing ever. <laughs> okay. Um, it's absolutely known. We don't have any question about who's better or who's worse. It's not a merit-based industry necessarily. Okay. If you're employed, you have merit. If you're employed, you have seniority. Where that seniority falls compared to others is where it falls, and it won't change unless you or them no longer are employed. Right. That's a wonderful thing, and it's also it can be a frustrating thing for some, but uh, because we know it from day one when we're hired – it doesn't even come into the realm of thought that this is good or bad. Right. It simply is. It, it, it's something that exists and manage your expectations accordingly. Exactly. Un- understood. Okay. Well, okay. So we've talked about how you got here. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what people understand as sort of the uh, train travel of the future, right? And, Great idea. And you've written a book. Your book is called Faster Than Jets. That's correct. And when did that come out? That was published in 2003. Okay, so, wow. For the last few years, we've been talking about what I think is commonly referred to as Hyperloop technology. You wrote about this almost a decade and a half ago. That's correct. And what led to your interest in high-speed rail travel? And give me a little download of what the book is about and what people uh, should know about it. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, the book is called, as you said, Faster Than Jets, but then there's a colon, A Solution to America's Long-Term Transportation Problems. Okay. Um, In 1996, I was hired by Amtrak. I was hired in Seattle because I didn't – there was no openings in Denver. I was hired in Seattle, uh, and I was working for Amtrak there. Uh, I was one of those assistant conductors we talked about. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever been to Seattle, but it does rain a little bit. <laughs> I've heard. And the tracks go right along Puget Sound north towards Vancouver, British Columbia. And above it is a big plateau of sand and mud. And the mudslides were just nonstop that year. And so I had a young wife, uh, young children, and desperately needing as much money as I could get. And my trains kept getting canceled because mudslides closed the tracks. Right. And I was so frustrated. And I thought, there must be 
a better form of transportation for humanity to use than these antiquated rail lines and highways, even airports. Uh, and, and in the Seattle area, the congestion was so bad then. And it was at the, about when was this? Well, it was at the height of the tech boom. Okay, so, so like late nineties, early two thousands, and it was just it was so frustrating to just try and move. Uh, even the ferry boats that I would ride back and forth to Seattle were overcrowded, and you'd miss them, and then you'd be late for work. It was it was <laughs> a frustration, and I decided then that I was going to seek out the very best form of human transportation possible within the technology that we had at the time, knowing that, you know, Captain Kirk's transporter beam probably wasn't an option. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, once Sony gets that teleporter working, that'll be tremendous, right? Then all other bets are off. <laughs> right. Uh, you'll see me in the Seychelles. Yes. So, <laughs> For I'll, lunch. Yeah. I'll be, uh, I'll be hanging out uh, with, the, with the nice Indian Ocean breeze washing over me. So, but uh, until that happens, right? Well, what do we have? So, so I began researching, and the idea of moving from point A to point B, I decided to look at it from an analytical point of view. Uh, what's the fastest route from A to B? It's a straight line, right? What's the biggest impediment to speed? It's friction. Okay. Whether it be the friction of of a wheel on an asphalt road or a piston inside of a sleeve of an internal combustion engine or even the bearings that hold a jet engine's turbine together, there's friction points all mm. over the place. And the more I learned about friction, the more I realized that we've done a tremendous job through lubrication, et cetera, of overcoming friction in our machines up to a point where metallurgy can handle it. But we have never really overcome the idea of beating wind resistance. And I thought about this while I was riding my bicycle. I would ride my bicycle across Bainbridge Island to get home. There's quite a few hills. Going down some of those hills, I could get up to 40 miles an hour. But I couldn't get it up to 50 because <laughs> the wind resistance held me back. And no matter how hard I'd pedal, overcoming the ebb, and that's because... It takes an exponential rise in energy to overcome wind resistance as speed increases. Mm. Uh, so I started looking for methods of getting rid of wind resistance, knowing that uh, it has stopped almost everything. For example, jetliners get as high as they can yeah. to get rid of wind resistance because there's lighter air the higher you go. And uh, I found a company online called Swiss Metro, which was uh, basically just a an idea of a bunch of engineering doctoral students at the Swiss Institute of Technology in Lausanne. Uh, and these guys had developed an idea called Swiss Metro that had gained some political traction in that country, and they were pushing it forward. And what they found was that if they were going to have the best transportation system in the world, and they were already known for the best railway system in the world, right. they had to go in straight lines and reduce friction. The best way to do that was to not have to worry about their mountains or their rivers or their cities. Right, the topography of Switzerland. It's not flat. It's challenging. Well, it's the biggest country in Europe if you iron it. <laughs> uh, I've never heard that. Is that yours? I don't. I, I invented that. Yes, I don't know if that's quite true. But the the point is that uh, they decided the only thing they could possibly do if they wanted to do this was to have underground, very long tunnels. And they had to evacuate all the air out of those tunnels, and they had to eliminate any mechanical bearing or friction point that would create heat. Hmm. Oh, and yeah. so the only thing they could come up with was a maglev train or pod okay. inside of a tube that was underground in a perfectly straight line. And by doing that kind of math, they found that it would be possible to transport goods and humans from a place like Luzon to uh, Basel or Bern in a matter of 15 minutes. And how far is that? Oh, you're talking about 100 miles-ish. Oh. But in, you could do that in that straight line rather than winding your way all over the place. And the Swiss have quite a good reputation of being able to dig very good, very long tunnels. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's true. Okay. Were they ultimately successful? Uh, no. No. The engineering looked plausible. But the politics didn't quite believe that it was. Mm. 
So by the early 2004-ish era, shortly after I published uh, Faster Than Jets, the plug was pulled, and ultimately the money that would have been put into Swiss Metro by the Swiss government was put towards standard uh, steel wheel rail, mm-hmm. and they maintained the very good system that they had rather than let that system suffer as funds were transferred to a unproven technology. Right. Instead of making a leap forward, they just sort of uh, continued to take small steps, you know, in, in, in not the paradigm-shifting way that ultimately would have changed how transportation worked there. That, that's right. Okay. In your book, and I apologize, I haven't read it. It's okay. Um, but, uh, not, not that many people have. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. This sounds like the impetus for writing this book. Do, do you, in this book, lay out like a plan for America? How is your book structured? I do. Um, the first thing I laid out was the problems that are facing American transportation, how our legacy systems are failing. Roads are almost impossible to expand fast enough to deal with population growth and uh, commerce expansion. Uh, just look at our, here in our own Denver metro area, we have US 36. We spent a half a billion dollars resurfacing it. It's a beautiful road. It works. There's not even any graffiti on it yet. Right. And yet already we have major traffic jams at Broomfield and uh, leaving Boulder because the demand is too high. Well, it reminds me of when we did T-Rex here, when we expanded yes. I-25. That started when I was like 10 years old Yes, and went until I was sometime in college. And even when they started T-Rex, they said, and which was a very successful project, they did great job with that, came in on time, under budget. I mean, hats off to them for the achievement of that. That's not nothing. But the thing about it is, it even as it was designed, it said, this will only get up to meeting demand 10 years from now. Yes. It, it, we're not even building enough to where we have some capacity uh, into the future. It's just, no, this will meet it up to this point. And you go, well, when we get there, then what? Yeah, and, and we got there and... And now what? <laughs> well, and the what is traffic jams. Yeah. Uh, even the light rail line, which helped tremendously, mm-hmm. is overwhelmed. I mean, if you take light rail from Dry Creek or wherever else during commuter hours, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with people you might not want to stand shoulder to shoulder with. It's It's very tight. Or if you think about something like the Flatiron Flyer, you know, that's, that's bus. That's an express bus. And anecdotally, I mean, I, I live in the city. I've heard that that is packed as well. Many times, and I live in the north on US 36, I've not been able to get on the bus because it's already full, not even standing room left. Oh, geez. So that's, that's a system that is as good as we've got, and it's overwhelmed, and we're still building condo on top of house on top of condo and and our we're just the the legacy system is overwhelmed now that's just the roads the rail lines uh although they're not quite as busy now as they were a few years ago during the heyday of the coal boom right uh are still antiquated slow cumbersome and and i love rail don't get me wrong i think it's uh especially amtrak's long distance trains here in the west have the value of a national park Wow. Uh, in scenery and, and just experience and nostalgia. But when it comes to functional, effective, efficient, green movement of people and goods, it is slow and dirty and cumbersome hmm. and circuitous. The need for more airports is rampant. Our own airport is not so bad, Denver International. Right. But it's far from town. And even with the A train getting out there, assuming it worked perfectly, it's still uh, a half hour from downtown at best. Right. Uh, it's it's far from downtown, and then all of the connections have to go to places that are completely weather dependent. So the other day, when there was a massive storm on the East Coast, it affected a tremendous number of flights in Denver that weren't even going to the East Coast, but right. they couldn't get the equipment into town. Right. So the air system is bogged down often, and demand just keeps rising. Have you ever seen a map of flight traffic, uh, particularly over the East Coast, where it shows all of the planes in the air at any given time? Many times. It's absolutely terrifying. It's it's a lot of airplanes. If you don't work in the industry, you go, oh, my God, how do these things not crash into each other? Yes. Now, granted, you've got an incredible amount of redundancies. I, I spoke to someone very early in this show 
who works uh, in, in inspection of uh, airplanes and their equipment, and he talks about the level of safety that goes into that. And I traveled a lot for business, so I, I'm, a, I'm an experienced flyer. I wasn't terribly concerned. But now, given what I know about how that industry is structured, I'm even less concerned. But to your point, in terms of volume, the volume is prohibitive and I, I would argue unsustainable. It, it, I think it certainly is, uh, especially as you look forward and you imagine a United States with a population of 400 million. Yeah. And then go to other countries where you have, uh, the affluence level in China, for example, where there's over a billion people and the air traffic is expanding so fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and India as well. Europe with its low cost airlines is finding that delays are commonplace where the European model used to be absolutely punctual. Right. So that's, that's a result of legacy systems of transportation falling down in the face of modern demand. Okay. So you've laid out the problem effectively. Tell me how you lay out your solution for that. Well, the solution is to go back to the very simple core, straight lines with no friction. Right. Uh, I lay out the whole big idea, the, the big idea being, of course, uh, vacuum tunnel maglev. For those of you who don't know, I mean, just to explain what maglev is. Please, yes. It's, it's as if you took a motor, a motor that runs your drying machine or, or whatever you have, just a round uh, induction motor, and that motor is made up of copper windings that are in a circle with a void through the middle, kind of like a donut. Mm-hmm. And in that donut, you have a armature that has a bunch of magnets in a round sphere that is connected to a brush. And when an alternating current of electricity flows through those windings and that armature, it creates electromagnetic attraction that causes that armature to spin inside the motor. I remember doing that. And in a very basic way in fifth grade science class. It's the exact same thing all the way up to a locomotive's traction motors. Okay. Oh, wow. It's amazing the power of something like that. It's, it's unstoppable if there's enough electricity on a big enough magnet. Okay. Wow. All right. So what maglev is, is it's a linear motor and a linear motor is taking those windings, the outside part, open them up, peeling them flat and laying them down like a track, mm-hmm. and then putting a whole bunch of them together in a long, linear fashion. Okay. And then taking that armature, the part in the middle that spins, yep. and cutting that right down to the middle and opening that up and laying that flat and putting that on top of the windings. And if you can hold the gap just right and you throw in an alternating current of increasing velocity, uh, voltage, that armature, instead of spinning in the middle of the motor, will run along the long stator motor. Okay, basically mimicking propulsion. Exactly. Okay. So that's how you move forward. And then to brake, by the way, because everybody wonders, well, how do you stop? You just reverse the polarity. <laughs> okay. And you, you do uh, the same thing that a Prius does when it goes into regenerative braking. And then the key from there is you've got to have a gap, so you have to have two magnets of south poles on top of each other so that it pushes against each other and causes that train or pod to float in the air. Now, the trick is making it stable. Sure. Because if you put two magnets together, there's push against each other. Oh, yeah. But they want to flop to the sides and grab a hold and and get back to stability. Yep. The trick of maglev is to hold that stable cushion. And there's an awful lot of technology that goes into that, but it's brilliant and it can be done and it's proven now. Right. So once you've got that, you've eliminated the mechanical friction of the device. Put it in a tunnel so you have an absolutely straight line, and then decompress that tunnel, suck out the air, and close the door. Mm. Now you've got a vacuum tube. And when you light up that train going through that vacuum tube, there's no resistance. Right. So how fast could you potentially go? If you have an absolutely perfectly built structure, it's unlimited. Okay. How fast can a spaceship go? I, well, that's true. And it's going through the same kind of vacuum. Okay. I understand that. Is, is that standard? I mean, you're, you're talking about a standard of perfection. Yeah. In reality, right. within human engineering, right. and the fact that the Earth has a little bit of warble in it, <laughs> yeah. uh, certainly 700 miles an hour is Jeez. achievable. 
And that's what's being talked about with the Hyperloop companies that are pushing this forward today. And you wouldn't feel that, would you? Or would you? Not much. Okay. Not much. Uh, if you were able to build a perfect structure in reality, what could we, what could we safely achieve? Yeah. I would say not more than 2,000 miles an hour. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> okay. I, I hope by doing this, you don't accidentally invent time travel. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's a, you know, uh, you, know you can, you can be in space circling the earth for a year and your watch will be less than a second off from the one you left at okay. home. <laughs> so time travel, I, I think that's a ways off. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so in terms of, let's talk practicality then. So you have these tubes. You've discussed it from an engineering standpoint. How would you connect them? Like, what would the infrastructure look like then? Well, uh, if it is to be underground, then it, it can be connected all over the place, uh, sort of like an interstate interchange where you have ramps and on-ramps and off-ramps mm. through these tubes. And then you have one-directional tubes, one east, one west, for example, and then it would interconnect with one north and one south on a different line, not too differently than we interchange with interstate highways. Okay. But what's really cool about going underground mm -hmm. is that you're not limited by a single plane the way we are on the surface with the flatness of the earth. Oh, right. I get you. You can have multiple, multiple levels of interconnectivity. Un unlike the surface where you have the one plane, you have unlimited uh, depth and breadth of the system. It's infinitely expandable without interfering with anybody's backyard. Right, but in a theoretical way. Yes, yes, in a theoretical way, but also in a practical way. Um, I, I understand that, but, but what you're describing is, you know, no one has tried this on this scale. So what you're talking about is a wholesale reinvention of our entire transportation system. Yes, it is. Which... Uh, in, so let's talk about limitations, which certainly very first and foremost immediately has got to be the political will to do this. Well, and, and that's money. Political right. will is money. There are two, there are two barriers. Time takes time to build this. Right. And money. It takes a lot of resources. Uh, in the book, I, I talk about that, uh, extensively because ultimately, I, I'm not an engineer. I'm, I'm not, uh, a PhD in physics. But uh, I, I do have some practical understanding of transportation, and it's a political book. Okay. It's a book that pushed the idea. And the bottom line is that the generation that chooses to move forward on this, and it does appear as if ours is, hmm. as we see Hyperloop companies and boring machines taking root, there will be a massive sacrifice for all of the generations to come. And, and I truly mean that in all of the generations to come because tunnels, they don't decay. They mm -hmm. don't fall apart. They're, they're not exposed to freeze thaw. They're not exposed to UV. They're not exposed to, uh, most of the problems that happen uh, on the surface. King Hezekiah from the Old Testament, centuries before Jesus, dug a tunnel from a, from a natural spring down into Jerusalem and it's called Hezekiah's Tunnel, and it still works today. Oh, wow. Tunnels last and last. Well, you know, it, it reminds me of, uh, I, I have a lot of familiarity with the oil and gas industry. And one of the things that they use to ensure that the well bores uh, retain their integrity is cement. Sure. And people say, well, I've got cement on my sidewalk. Well, okay, first of all, that's concrete. That's not cement. That's much different. Some, uh, concrete is only about 15% cement or so. When you're talking about pure cement that is not exposed to elements, not exposed to weather, not exposed to erosion, things like that, it will last forever. Yes. So uh, in, in sort of analogical way, uh, I agree with what you're saying because I've experienced that firsthand having worked in that industry. And I hadn't thought of it that way. But for me, that's very instructive. Sure. And, uh, well, let's look at it in a local level. We, we did T-Rex. Right. We spent enormous amounts of money and we poured a lot of concrete. <laughs> we sure did. We're starting to have to repair it already. Yeah. If uh, you, our weather is nuts here. It is. And if you put that underground just a few meters, and you're not pounding on it like you would with a steel wheel going across a rail, but rather you're zooming across it with a, a levitated linear motor maglev vehicle, 
you're going to cause almost no damage to that structure right. forever. And not only that, but assume we come up with a better way than what we understand of maglev today. Mm. We can always use it. Kind of like when President Eisenhower started building the interstate highway system, we were cruising down the road in a 57 Chevy, right. fine automobile, oh, yeah. but nothing compared to the efficiency of the technology today that goes along this same right-of-way. That's true. And, you, I mean, talking about the interstate highway system, that is something that, for whatever reason, uh, I, just, I love learning more about it. Because, again, we're talking about political will. That's a big deal. That's a big idea. Well, and it was my father's generation that chose to sacrifice. Right. And we benefit today constantly. No, that's a good point. Question for you. Are you pursuing this in a meaningful way? Are you, do you have skin in the game in terms of Hyperloop and, you know, uh, you know, pursuing this in a practical way? I don't at this time. Uh, when I wrote the book, I, it, it was so new. No Americans knew about it. Right. And uh, so the book is rather dated now because uh, I created a website and started sure. a political action company, and that was my skin in the game at the time. And it fizzled as there just wasn't any bounce. But your book was translated into Japanese, though, right? Uh, Chinese. Chinese? Yes. Oh, okay. I thought it was Japanese for some reason. No, uh, it was translated by uh, Chengdu University in okay. southwest China. Is there movement on this there? There's a lot of interest there. Okay. However... The real push is is right here in the United States. Hmm. Um, the the absolutely thrilling thing for me, uh, John, is that we're seeing now almost exactly what I wrote about becoming real. Hmm. And uh, it's taken a long time, but it began <laughs> in 2013 when Elon Musk, you know, from SpaceX and Tesla and Solar City uh, fame. Well, and PayPal before that, which gave right. him the capital to do all those things. When he suggested Hyperloop, and at the time he wasn't exactly sure what it would be, but he imagined that it was a low-pressure tube above ground on stilts that pods would go through with turbines that would take what little air there was in the tube and suck it in and then blow it out the back and move right. really quick, and everybody would go the same direction in a loop. Right, and he basically almost doodled this on the back of a napkin at one point, right? It, it was almost to that level. Right. But because he's got the kind of credibility he does, I mean, let's face it, the guy has a company that can blast off into space and land the booster like a pencil on the eraser out in the middle of the ocean. Right, and and a pretty strong cult of personality, too. There are a lot of people who just almost worship the guy. Which I go to his brother's restaurant a lot. I mean, it's really good, but I wouldn't call it worship. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but uh, what that did, what what he was able to do was get people interested and start thinking about the idea of low-pressure transportation. Right. Uh, immediately, things started to move forward. A competition was started. And as soon as real scientists and engineers started working on this, not that he isn't real, but uh, as people with a practical understanding of it, yes, to, to, to craft it in a meaningful way. Thank you. Yes. As soon as that started happening, it quickly turned away from a pneumatic system that uses air to a linear motor maglev system. Right. And the reason for that is practicality. Uh, anytime you have molecules inside a confined space, you're going to start heating up. Mm. As soon as you cause those molecules to bounce against each other faster, for example, by having pods race through them and suck in and blow out air, <laughs> right. it's going to get hot fast. Yeah. The amount of energy it takes to dissipate that heat to where it's still functional would have blown away any kind of gain that you get. Right. And, and we better start mining coal again. Right. So <laughs> that... That turned into the linear motor through not just a reduced vacuum, but as close to a true vacuum as you can get, really dropping that that uh, atmospheric pressure down inside the tube. And that got us a whole lot closer to what I wrote about. And that transformation was almost immediate. Starting all the way back in 2014, we started realizing it would be maglev. It wouldn't be pneumatic. Gotcha. Okay, so let's say, hypothetically... We, we get, uh, we get this awesome kumbaya moment where politicians agree we need to upgrade and update our entire transportation infrastructure and maglev trains is the way to do it. How long until it's 
uh, a scale that that has disrupted our current transportation system? Well, that'd probably be around twenty years. Wow. Um, but the first lines would be within five. Okay. And here's here's what it would be. Uh, well, first of all, we haven't gotten to why it would have to be underground yet, as opposed to what's going on right now, which is sort of surface uh, test tracks. Right. But uh, um, if you start digging a tunnel and you wanted to go from Denver to Chicago, you'd never finish. <laughs> no. But if you started every 50 meters, uh, 50 kilometers rather, mm-hmm. and dug both directions, hmm. you only have to go 25 kilometers. And if it's through nice, happy uh, uh, geology like subsurface sandstone, which we have here on the Front Range, right. then you could do theoretically a few improvements, 50 meters a day. Wow. And now you're only talking about a few years before you start connecting those multiple tunnels into one big long one. I get you. And now all of a sudden, in just five years, we start running on a Hyperloop maglev subsurface transport system between here and Chicago that has a departure every 15 minutes and has us in Chicago in 40. <laughs> That sounds awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, Brad, uh, I, I could do this with you all day. And the thing that's so exciting is you live in the future. I mean, in terms of your thinking about this and your excitement about this, you're in the future. And that is so cool. I'll tell you what, after talking to you and listening to you, uh, I want to live in the future also because this, this is just the idea of this is thrilling. Well, John, if I could say one thing about that. Yeah. As a railroader, a modern railroader, I really feel I was born a hundred years too late. <laughs> I wish I could have been with David Moffat and yeah. AJ Sumner, uh, mapping out the line of the Moffat Road and blasting the tunnels and, and doing these things that we still use today every day. And yet today's future, I believe, is subsurface hyperloop. And it's every bit as exciting. And a hundred years from now, some kid is going to be saying, man, I wish I was a hundred years ago. <laughs> no kidding. Be on the leading edge of that. Well, I'll tell you what, Brad, we do need to wrap up. So now's the time in the show where we do plugs. Uh, if you'd like to plug your book or if you have anything, a website, social media, plug anything you want right now. Well, I, I appreciate, I don't really have a plug for me. Uh, you know, it, there's still a few copies out of Faster Than Jets, which is, it's a fun read. It's dated. It, it's sure. out of date, but, uh, it is exciting to read where Maglev is, where it's going, and then to compare it to where it is now. And then just go to those websites at Hyperloop One or Hyperloop Transportation Technologies and look at where they're going. Then look at Elon Musk, who started a tunnel boring company. Oh, wow. What he calls the boring company because he now realizes you can't do it on the surface. May, you may need some work on the branding. The Boring Company? The Boring Company. I think it's a good brand. I like it. Everybody should be boring. And and the thrill of it, John, real quickly, if I could just say, it's it's the American culture that's coming out of Silicon Valley and places like Denver where where young people are learning everything they can, becoming experts, and coming together in groupthink organizations to to move forward and do great things. And And that culture, that Silicon Valley kind of culture – is driving this Hmm. and it's thrilling to see people who aren't satisfied with the way things are. They want to see a future that's far better. And that's why Americans are running the show. And if our government will get out of the way, (laughs) it will be here. If they don't, these people are not bound by national borders. Hyperloop is going to be somewhere. And it would be a shame if it's not here because it's, it's our culture that's creating it. This, this free market, all, no holds barred free market of technology ideas. But we'll end up building it in Dubai or right. Shanghai or Mumbai instead of Chicago and LA and Denver. Instead of leading the way like we should. And, and we can, but we need government backing or even more importantly, the lack of government stifling. Right. I think that's a great note to end on. Brad, this was an enormous pleasure. This was highly informative and, uh, and a lot of fun. And I wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much, John. And we have pulled into our destination here on episode 130 with Brad Schwartzwelder. Thank you, Brad, for giving us some insight as to the life of a train conductor, what it's like, what it entails, the type of work that you do, the type of schooling that you went through. 
And thank you for sharing your insight about high-speed rail, about maglev train, about what people commonly refer to as hyperloop. Very, very exciting, and your insight is second to none. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be on my show. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. We're also on the social media. So hit up Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, all at the handle J-O-A-T-Pod. I am back here with a brand new episode next week. I've got episodes upon episodes upon episodes getting booked. My schedule is filling up. It's very exciting. I don't know. Maybe that's a boost from the Westward Award. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But I thank you again for making me a part of your life. And if you took the time to vote, my infinite gratitude to you. I cannot do this show without you. And so your support is something that means very, very much to me. And I thank you dearly. So we will see you back here next week. Episode previews go up on Monday. New episodes drop on Wednesday. And so until I hear you again, say goodnight, please. That's good, Johnny.